The following episode is brought to you by the American Urological Association. Uh, good afternoon. My name is Jay Raman, and I'm professor of urology at Penn State Health and chair of the AUA's Office of Education. Um, it's my pleasure to host another of the Office of Education's podcast series. And this podcast is specifically on the topic of publishing ethics. Um, it's really my pleasure uh, to host Dr. John Mulhall uh, for this podcast. Dr. Mulhall is a director of both uh, the Male Sexual and Reproductive Medicine Program and the Sexual Medicine Research Laboratory at the Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York City. And he's also the editor-in-chief of the Journal of Sexual Medicine. Uh, John, thank you so much for uh, joining today. It's, it's really my pleasure uh, to, uh, to do this podcast with you. It's my pleasure. And I just want to point out that uh, since the beginning of the year, I'm also sitting on the editorial board of the Journal of Urology, uh, a fact I'm very proud of. So, Outstanding. Um, well, I always like doing these, these podcasts. It's, it's um, even more enjoyable to, to do them uh, with somebody that you trained under. So uh, I, I feel like some of this has now come full circle 20 plus years later that uh, now I actually get to... Uh, to, to interview you and, and have a discussion with you uh, from going from sort of trainee to, to peer colleagues. So it's, well, it's, it's one of the great joys of academia to see your uh, your students progress and, and get to the level you're at, Jay. So congratulations on that front. So. No, thank you so much. So, you know, I think this, this topic is so timely uh, and so appropriate because, I, you know, I would tell you as somebody that sits on the, uh, the promotion and tenure committee at my university hospital, one of the, the key elements of promotion is scholarship, is academic scholarship, is publications, um, and, and often sometimes the quality, maybe even the publications, you know, the, the whole impact factor concept. And, and I think one of the dangers or one of the, the, the very tricky things is when you have that as a goal and an endpoint, um, there, there's always the risk of um, making sure it's done properly and, and ethically and, and following uh, the, the appropriate framework. And, and I think this is why this is just so important and practical for everybody, but, but particularly those in academic medicine. Yeah. So, you know, we, uh, we spend years training uh, a young urologist how to be a competent surgeon. And we encourage them to get involved in research during residency and to write and to learn how to write. But I think there's so little attention paid on, you know, how to do it properly and the ethics of uh, publishing and the sins of publishing. Um, so I think this is a very important topic for uh, trainees and I think also for faculty who are mentoring trainees. Okay. So, you know, we'll, we'll sort of span maybe a few different uh, areas uh, in different domains and, and it'll sort of be broad reaching. But but let's start first um with the R's of, of scientific publishing, the four yeah. R's of scientific publishing. I think there was a Nature article not long ago on that. Um, yeah. What are the R's and, and really what, what do they mean to you? Yeah, so I think this is a really good place to start for any any trainee understanding of why are we doing this, right? So uh, the first is that um, if you're choosing a journal, you want to make uh, the journal relevant to your paper and the paper relevant to that journal, right? So as urologists, we published predominantly in urology, and that's relevant to urologists. So the first R is relevance. Um, the second is um, a rigor. So we want to conduct it with rigorous science. Um, I think another area that is uh, 
we're undertrained in is research statistics and you know the modern statistics armamentarium is massive so uh, relevant and rigorous and the third and probably the most important in my opinion is reproducible so the goal is that we're going to publish something and through our methods description uh, we're going to help any other researcher in the future reproduce what we've just done and you have to give the readership enough information and enough detail so that they can do that i think as you're probably aware there's grave concern over the last decade with research being done showing that many of the seminal papers at least in the field of psychology are completely unreproducible so this is really really important for mentors and mentees to understand please make sure that the methodology is, is um, rigorous, but also that it's written in such a way that it can be reproduced. And then finally, and not a small point, is the last door is readability. Um, we've got to journal publishing now where there are two and a half pages of statistics. And for a clinical urologist, sometimes they are uninterpretable and it's just not intelligible. So when we're writing papers, there's an onus on us to communicate effectively. And that means the paper needs to be readable. You know, your your point is such a good one because, you know, I will tell you as somebody that, that reads a lot of uh, uh, journal articles, reviews a lot of journal articles, um, there are times when I will come to the statistics section of a manuscript and it's pages and pages. And, uh, and I, you know, having done this for some time, I'm fairly facile with understanding statistics and methodology. But to your point, when it sometimes gets to the extent where you can no longer follow the scientific methodology, then the reproducibility and then the readability, it, your latter two points really become um, become a big challenge. Yeah. And in the modern era, we're becoming increasingly reliant on biostatisticians to do appropriate work. And I think there's a good argument in favor of that. I think, you know, we hand a, a copy of SPSS to some uh, PGY4 and say, okay, do the stats. And, you know, we think they're going to be a stats expert in a month. Uh, when I think there's a very good reason for having a biostats person involved, but I think the biostats people, if listening to this, there's pressure on you to make it readable. And so that a clinical urologist or a clinical physician or a clinical nurse practitioner are going to be able to read the material that you've just produced. And it's not written in kind of um, stat babble. Okay. Um, so yeah, four R is important. First good starting point in publishing. So uh, let's maybe go to, to another topic, which is um, this, this whole concept of, of plagiarism and, um, and, and, you know, it's it's. Uh, I, I think a lot about this because when I have, say, medical students or junior level residents who come and do a research project and want to work with me, many have never written a paper before, and right. uh, I will give them some of my old papers, or I will tell them, "Here, you need to PubMed, or you need to search these papers." And and I, sometimes I wonder to myself, maybe I haven't provided enough framework because I worry the natural tendency is, are they going to inadvertently just lift parts of different areas that they're reading. So uh, maybe talk about the concept of, of plagiarism. Um, and sometimes it's not as blatant as just copying line by line, right? The concept of plagiarism is not just verbatim. There may be nuances to that. Well, uh, first of all, you know, to define it, it's basically copy and pasting phrases, sentences, and we've seen paragraphs from other works with or without attribution, even if you attribute it, if it's verbatim, 
And that is ethically non-sound. And not alone is it ethically non-sound, it infringes upon copyright, right? So I think it behoves um, academic, let's say urologists, given where we're, we're speaking, to talk to people who are writing papers, the med student, the residents, and really the first talk they have is to talk about how to write properly without plagiarizing. It isn't that you can't use an idea from another paper. You just have to phrase it uh, in a different way. Now, most of the plagiarism that happens is uh, surely accidental, right? There's somebody who doesn't understand um, and they're just copying something. They, they um, uh, wanted to change it and they didn't change it. Um, but we do get circumstances, you know, I'm the editor-in-chief of the Journal of Sexual Medicine, and we do get circumstances where entire swaths of papers are cut and pasted into a paper. Mm. And this is, you know, a huge academic issue. It really is academic fraud. And, you know, the most important thing in your career as a urologist is your reputation. So you can sully your reputation very quickly by getting a reputation for plagiarizing. The problem is this. If you're a senior author, Jay Raman, and you're doing a paper with a resident and they give you an excellent draft, how do you know? Mm -hmm that paragraph one, two, three, four, five, or six doesn't contain some plagiarism, right? So I think there is increasing onus on us to start using uh, screening software, plagiarism screening software at the medical center university level. We do this at journals, that's papers come in, they get screened, they get a percentage overlap, excluding the references and excluding the abstract, and we get a number. And different journals have different numbers at which they'll start, the alarm bells start ringing, ringing. But I think that there's a number at which we'll say, hold on a second, we need to look at this paper carefully, right? I, my experience at, as an editor-in-chief for the last seven years is that it's nearly always inadvertent. It's nearly always in the methods. And as we know, how many different ways can you write methods, right? But I think it's very important that we, when a, when a student, resident, fellow is sitting down to writing a paper, that's the first thing in their mind. Okay, make sure we don't do plagiarism. Now, the other thing that's not well appreciated is um, uh, self-plagiarism or what's called text recycling. Mm -hmm. You know, Jay Raman writes about topic X all the time. We're asked to do another paper and you take your own work from previously. That's also not permitted because of copyright issues. So you have to think of the 15th way to write the same thing <laughs> in, a different, in a different manner. So these are very important uh, considerations. And again, I will say to anyone listening, this is considered academic fraud. And the consequences are not insignificant. So first of all, we write generally a letter saying, hey, the overlap is very high. Can you please change it? And nearly always people will do that. But if the overlap is very alarming, uh, or it happens a second time in that person's career in that journal, they may get a warning letter and may go on to something as significant as a letter to your dean, your uh, chairperson, et cetera, et cetera. So this is a huge thing that you need to be aware of as a writer. So you sort of hit the latter point I was going to ask you, which is as an editor-in-chief, um, when when it, when you, you get a manuscript and you know, that magic number comes through when you run your, your plagiarism uh, software, it seems like the first course of action is as you review it, um, perhaps maybe even the benefit of the doubt that maybe this was an inadvertent. Yeah. Um, but but what if it, it is blatant? Um, is that really what has been your sort of course of action? Because I guess as a as a academician, you would hope that there is some accountability for that, right? It's not just simply 
Journal of Sexual Medicine says, we don't, we're fine. We don't want this manuscript, but there is some accountability. So it doesn't get passed on elsewhere. How do you manage that as an editor in chief? Well, I'll, I'll give, I'll give you exactly what the algorithm is in, in the journal. I, I'm not sure how it works exactly with um, JUAL because I've just joined the editorial board, but at, at JSM, um, there's a letter that goes, um, if it's minimal, if it's significant, we want um, a full accounting of how this happened. If it happens in more one occasion, then uh, we've had, I'll give you a case history, we had a, a series of papers come in from uh, a center, an international center, um, and the overlap rates were 81%, 61%, and 62%, hmm. right? The overlap rates, right? The second time it happened, the authors got a warning letter basically telling them that if this happens again, there will be further sanctions. And the third time it happened, we banned them from the journal for 12 months. We wrote a letter to the dean of their medical school, the chairperson mm. in their department. So, you know, that doesn't look very good on your track record. Um, but these were clearly circumstances where not enough attention was paid, at least on the second and third occasion. Mm -hmm. And with six plus percent overlap, Everyone knows that's wrong. Right. What I think we should be doing, Jay, is that we as academicians, our centers, our editorial departments, we should be getting the software up front so you as a senior author, me as a senior author, can look at our junior's work and say, yeah, it's got minimal overlap. We're good. Okay? Yeah. And I think, honestly, it is my impression that plagiarism rates are going up. Okay? And I, I'm worried that... People are so busy in their lives, academically and privately, that there are shortcuts being taken. And because of that, uh, there's a bit of extra cutting and pasting going on without mm -hmm. um, really doing the legwork that should be done. Hmm. So uh, let's maybe transition to, to another topic that, that's always a little bit touchy, which is the concept of authorship. Yeah. Um, and and I, I think this is relevant at all phases of your career when you're when you're a student when you're a resident when you're junior faculty and then obviously when when theoretically you are you are the senior author or you're the, the senior member uh, maybe talk to me a little bit about authorship and some of the the challenges and pitfalls associated with yeah. it so you know the first point is you know how would you define an author right yeah. uh, i think we've all seen papers case series of 60 patients with 24 authors right i define an author and to me, and in my journal, authorship is defined as physical effort or intellectual uh, contribution, right? Um, we, our journal at JSM, have a limit of eight authors. We have many papers that have more than that. But the senior author has to justify for us uh, why there's more than um, the eight authors. And sometimes they're multi-institutional, multi-center international collaborative registries, et cetera, and that's perfectly understandable. So there historically has been um, a practice whereby people's names are added onto a paper. Mm -hmm. And there are certain parts of the world where this is more common than others. And if you understand how people uh, ascend the academic ladder and uh, progress in their status from assistant to associate to a uh, full professor, you understand the temptation of having 300 papers on your CV mm -hmm. without really having done much work. The problem is it's not a victimless crime, right? And it's not a victimless crime because we choose 
uh, directors of education of urological societies. We choose uh, chairmen, chairpersons. We choose, choose people who are doing the plenaries based on their CV. Mm -hmm. And if your CV has half of the papers on it are really you contributed very little, then that's just unfair. And I would consider that academic fraud also. Um, you know, the idea there was an era when, you know, your chairperson just got their name added onto the paper. Mm -hmm. I have no problem putting James Easton's name on the paper because James reads the papers and sends out, you know, extensive notes and saying you need to change this and do this and do the other. But that's not always been the case. And I think that practice really needs to stop, given the reliance at, at promotion committees of looking at the number of papers, looking at the impact factor, the H index, I think, which you alluded to, um, looking at that and, and deciding who's going to become a professor. I think that's very, very important. There are a couple of other areas where authorship issues become a problem. And by the way, I want to direct any of the readers, listeners, to uh, COPE, the Committee on Publication Ethics, COPE. COPE.org, which if you really want to delve into this, that's a, it's a fantastic resource for an academician. They have whole algorithms and pathways that you're supposed to follow as, a, as an editor when these problems arise. The other uh, issues are failure to credit co-authors. So we periodically get situations where people write to us and say, you know, I spent a lot of time working on this and my name wasn't attached to the work. And that becomes very problematic. It becomes a he said, she said, where's the trail of emails, et cetera. But we do deal with that periodically, right? And we do have circumstances where authors write to us and say, I want my name taken off this work because mm -hmm. I didn't sign off on the final draft. And mm -hmm. these are very thorny issues that require a lot of um, uh, political uh, discussion and um, in the vast majority of cases, people become rational and there's an agreement. I would say to any junior person, if he, even to a senior author, when you're starting a project, you should really in your mind start defining what the authorship is going to look like mm -hmm. from the very outset. Who's going to be a senior author? Who's likely to be the, um, the first author or the first, second author? Joint first authors. If you've got two fellows who are working very hard on a similar project, I'm totally in support of joint first authorship. But I think these things are best dealt with at the outset. Do you think I've, I've seen more and more journals where when you have your author list, uh, it actually very specifically asks what were the elements of contribution to this manuscript, right? Concept and design, writing, editing, um, statistical analysis methods. Do, do you think that processes like that aid in at least defining the contribution to being an author on a manuscript, understanding that it, it may be somewhere in this entire spectrum of, of what I just mentioned. Uh, I would have to say my experience over my seven years as an editor in chief is that um, senior authors will write back to you and tell you what they think they want. I want to hear. And, uh, <laughs> those forms are completely useless. Uh, there's no proof as to who did what. And it's an honor system. But again, given that there is a huge um, pressure on people to build up their CVs, um, I don't know. I think human nature gets in the way. And uh, so it's a very thorny issue. Um, there are clear guidelines on cope.org as to how, what defines an author and, and authorship malpractice. But it's very difficult to prove and to control. Sure. Um, let's talk about conflict of interest. And um, I would certainly say um, 
I, uh, I encounter this a lot because a lot of the, the AUA's Office of Education annual meeting or any of the written content is, if it's CME accredited, there has to be very clear conflict of interest disclosures as well as, um, as, well as accountability. Um, talk to us about conflict of interest um, and, and sort of the, 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 the difficult nature of maybe um, disclosures and applicability to the science or even disclosures that are not related to the, the scientific work being submitted. So, you know, as, as an editor-in-chief, I, I think most senior editors would say the same thing. 75% of our work is conflict management, right? And I think there's nothing that goes further than having a phone conversation with somebody over a thorny issue, right? And the most common phone calls I have are with people where there is a concern of a conflict of interest. First of all, the differentiation between disclosure, which is just saying that I have a relationship with X, Y, or Z, and then there is the conflict. And that conflict is defined really by the editorial staff, right? You have a disclosure, um, there's, you're involved with five industry um, um, groups, and it might be that you have disclosure without any conflict whatsoever. The topic at hand has got nothing to do with your industry involvements. However, it is not uncommon for us to see people who have well-known industry relationships who have not declared. Mm -hmm. And just for the junior people, evasion of that, not addressing that straight up front, maybe it's an error, mistake, but not addressing that really starts um, shedding a much more intense spotlight on your disclosures and the, the thought process behind it. Um, I think the vast majority of people who have uh, disclosures don't have a conflict of interest. Mm -hmm. And I think the science that they publish is excellent, credible, and um, reproducible, and we don't have to be worried. But there are some circumstances, and we get this periodically, where we are very worried about the conflict of interest. Now, there are other conflicts of interest besides the classic thing about being associated with a um, an industry that you've worked closely with. And that is if you happen to be, let's say, somebody who for the last 10 years of your practice has promulgated a concept and you're married to that concept and you're known as the person in that field. And somebody comes out and comes up with data that completely quashes that. Mm -hmm. You're don't declare in your next paper that you're like the world's most, let's say, from my standpoint, I describe myself as the world's most avid penile rehabilitation uh, enthusiast, right? So, you know, I have to be careful because I always state that up front. And some people are so married to a technique or to a concept in urology that that in itself is a conflict. It's not an industry conflict. It's not a financial conflict, but it's a conflict nonetheless. And if your livelihood depends on procedure X, and procedure X is all of a sudden shown to be worthless, mm -hmm. that's a problem. Mm -hmm. And so these are subtle um, nuances in the COI sphere. But it is a major concern. And, you know, it's not a common thing in, in my journal. And I suspect it's not common in Journal of Urology. But it is something that we pay very close attention to. So let's uh, let's talk about Institutional Review Board, uh, IOCUC, uh, for, for the yeah. animal care. Uh, we see this in all of the uh, 
the articles, right? If you go to the methods section or somewhere, you've you've cited your IRB approval number, your IACUC approval number. Um, but but what is your perspective as a journal editor on uh, how do you equivocate this? How do you um, how do you determine what really does need IRB approval and what doesn't? Um, maybe talk talk to me about that process. Yeah. So uh, first of all, there's, um, there are many different kinds of IRB approval, right? There's an approval to a randomized placebo-controlled trial, and there's um, exempt status. We need communication as a journal editor that you have presented any human research to your IRB and that they have decided how that should be handled, right? So in your method section, that should be declared. This has got IRB approval number X, Y, or Z. And um, we like to get that letter of approval mm-hmm. uh, from, the, um, from the IRB. We're an international journal, so sometimes they come in in Danish. <laughs> and, you know, it, how do we interpret that? But we want approval. There should be an IRB number uh, that you're able to put down, okay? Um, I think it's probably more difficult to do animal research these days than it is to do human research, but we need an IACUC, an Institution of Animal Care and Use Committee, uh, approval number also if you're doing uh, animal-based research. So essentially, any human research that you're doing, whether it's just some questionnaire that you're sending out, you really should be checking with your IRB. What do we need here? Completely exempt or full board review, et cetera, et cetera. And we need to know that from you. Okay. The other thing that's um, that you need to uh, do as an author is um, if you're doing a trial, it's incumbent upon you to register that trial with clinicaltrials.gov. And if you haven't registered, how do we know what was an a priori inclusion or exclusion criterion or endpoint as opposed to what you've declared inside your paper now? So that's very, something we look at very carefully with all trials. Was it registered and has the data how it's being presented is different than what was talked about a priori in the clinicaltrials.gov situation. The other thing is that, of course, meta-analysis, systematic reviews and meta-analyses are so common these days, right? Mm-hmm. Not every systematic review is fantastic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Rubbish data in, rubbish out, right? right, right but if right. it's a good systematic review, you have to be now um, registering with Prospero. You, just like an, uh, a randomized control trial, we need it registered in PROSPERO, P-R-O-S-P-E-R-O, and we need to see that that's being done. And again, just it's a little extension of what we're talking about, Jay, but I, I think that really we're at a point in time in science where you have to be using checklists, okay? Whether it's um, consort or Prisma or Moose um, or the, the 30 checklists we have, you have to be using checklists and declare that, and that should be attached as an appendix and you could check off all the appropriate boxes. To me, that just shows that you're meticulous, you know, mm-hmm. it goes back to the rigor and the reproducibility that we talked about at the very outset. So let's talk about a, a, a subject that's it's probably uncomfortable, probably uncomfortable uh, on all parties when it's identified. Uh, both for the, uh, the the authors, both for the reviewers, probably even for the the editors, which is this this whole issue of um, uh, fabrication or or falsification of data. And and uh, you know, in the prelude, when we talked about this initially, um, you know, the, there there's always this impetus to publish. But related to the impetus to publish is the impetus to have studies that have positive results, right? And we all know that. Um, you can't have 100% positive results in all studies, right? So 
how do you um, maybe talk to us a little bit about this? Talk to us a little bit about how, how often do you think this occurs? Um, and, and what's the scope of the problem that we have? Yeah, I think it, I don't know that we have. I know that we don't have data, um, but I think it occurs more regularly than um, we believe or than we think. I think it occurred throughout history. And um, I think, again, with this uh, obsession with loading our CV with papers, um, especially in a very rapid manner over a short period of time in academia, people accumulate 200 papers within a few years. One has to be very suspicious uh, of some of the work. So there are some things that trigger concern for me as an editor-in-chief. Single author papers, we're always concerned about that. Perfectly conducted, randomized, placebo-controlled trials, always concerned about that. As I said earlier on, uh, trials that are not registered in um, in clinicaltrials.gov. Um, data that's just look too good to be true. So what we do now, uh, it is more difficult to get an intervention study published in the Journal of Sexual Medicine than any other kind of intervention. Whether it's a psychological intervention, a medication, or a surgical procedure, we hold those papers up to a very, very close scrutiny because they're the papers that change clinical practice. Mm-hmm. And we don't want some practicing urologist changing the way he or she does something based on data that's not accurate. So increasingly now, in fact, almost uniformly now, we're asking authors for their data. Mm-hmm. That data will undergo statistical review. Nearly always, the author sends the data. Nearly always, we've had very rare exceptions where we never hear back from the author again. Mm-hmm. It's itself concerning. Right? So falsification is basically just the data is just false okay um that can be something as simple as manipulation of a immunoblot for example and this is a big issue in basic science research where photoshop is used to change immunoblots and change the um the message the results um uh in in the paper so that's very difficult to define Okay, we have some very, very smart reviewers reviewing for us. And every so often we get one of them will pick it up and they'll say, this, this, doesn't, this doesn't look right. Okay, mm-hmm. and then we have to go back and ask for the original immunoblots. Okay, so we do ask for data, raw data, particularly for intervention studies. But again, just like authorship manipulation, it is very difficult to be 100% sure. Uh, and it's an honor system and mm-hmm. uh, we always try and give people the benefit of the doubt. But there are very famous cases in my field, for example, people who have had large numbers of papers retracted because it came to light that they were entirely fabricated. Hmm. And that's the the not just one portion of it, but the entire methodology and or results. Now we've um, we've had situations where in the AUA guidelines, I sit on the practice guideline committee and AUA guidelines in my space, there were authors in there where it was well known those papers were just completely falsified. Single author from uh, an area of the world not renowned for research in an area of the world where this condition uh, was not prevalent, mm. uh, where uh, it was a perfectly conducted randomized placebo controlled trial that nobody else could ever replicate. Now, they don't get retracted like the year after they get published, right? They're in the field for, you know, 10 years before they get retracted. The interesting thing about retracted papers is that, you know, a retracted paper 
still is available for you to right. find online and continues to get signing. And um, so we're particularly cautious about this now uh, in the journal. So we spend a lot of time so far talking about authors. And, and now we're going to maybe talk about the, the other side of it, which is the reviewers. Yeah. And, and obviously all journals, uh, you, you really need the, the, you need your reviewers. You need the benevolence of your reviewers who, who do it as a volunteerism by and large and, and, yeah. and contributing to the scientific community. But talk a little bit about maybe the concept of, of, you know, if you want to call it reviewer malpractice that, yeah. that, uh, and, and how do you, how do you deal with that? How do you manage that as an editor? How do you recognize that as an editor? Yeah. So, so first of all, um, a brief shout out to everyone who reviews for journals. It truly is volunteerism. If you're doing it properly, you're spending a lot of time and we are eternally thankful to people who do that. Um, it, it's, it's really just a fantastic academic commitment. Thank you. Um, so, you know, publishing is a competitive thing. There is competition. We're innately competitive. And um, there are famous cases of people uh, rejecting an article. And then all of a sudden, a new paper comes out six months later, same topic. And uh, the person who's writing it was the reviewer. <laughs> now, I believe that kind of level of malfeasance is uncommon, right? So the first area of reviewer malpractice um, uh, would be if you have a conflict mm -hmm. in reviewing. Uh, the person writing your paper, the paper is uh, one of your trainees, is your mentor. Um, you've had well-known uh, headbutting sessions with. Um, there's not uh, good blood between you. That's not fair to offer yourself or agree to review a paper in, under those circumstances. You really need to be devoid of any conflict. You really need to be able to give a balanced decision. Um, so that's the first issue. Mm -hmm. um, the second issue is um, urging self-citation, which before I became an editor-in-chief, I never really gave any thought to. But, you know, we'll get reviewers right and they'll say, well, the paper is deficient in that these three uh, references should be added. And the references are all <laughs> including the name of the reviewer, right? That is by code guidelines uh, forbidden. Now, there are circumstances where somebody has written the seminal paper and therefore it's very reasonable that it's included and should, it should have been included from the outset. But urging uh, authors to include your papers is really not, uh, not, not very good, right? That is, is disallowed. Um, I already talked about misappropriation of authors' ideas. I re reject the paper and then like six months later, I'm publishing something very similar. Um, the other thing that's interesting is that there are journals that are in competition with each other. I have to say to you, you know, in the urology space, the journals get on really well together. Mm -hmm. uh, there's, it's, it's very collegial. And so I'm not talking about in the urology space, but there are well-known spats between journals. And somebody's an editorial board member of Journal B. They reject the paper from Journal A and they send it, they urge it to go on to Journal B. So there's some of that stuff that goes on also. But really probably the most prevalent, what I would call um, reviewer in quotations malpractice, would just be language in your review, right? I think that we're trying to be, we should be trying to be constructive and kind. We're trying to make that paper the best paper it can possibly be. When you're reviewing, you don't decide if the paper gets accepted or not, right? You decide if it's worthy of acceptance 
the editor decides if it gets accepted. So we get five reviews in, three say major revision, one says minor, one says reject. We have to weigh up those decisions as an editor-in-chief and decide what we're going to do with it. So your job is to constructively make, try and make that paper better. What's deficient? What are the authors not done? Have they oversold, right? But sometimes the language that appears in reviews is just completely inappropriate. It's mm -hmm. scurrilous, it's demeaning, and it's frankly, frankly not very constructive. That to me is completely wrong. And I would put out that under the banner of, in quotations, uh, reviewer malpractice. The final thing I wanna mention is that it's perfectly reasonable for us to use a subordinate to review a paper, provided we are mentoring them through the review of that paper. What is a problem is busy professors handing the paper off to a resident or a fellow say, go review that and then write it up, looking at the paper and not looking at the review. Now, mm -hmm. I don't know how often that happens, but I believe it happens more often than, than we think. And so if you're a subordinate and you want to learn how to review, the best way to do that is to review. But you really need to be going to your mentor and say, I want you to talk me through this and why you think my review is good or bad. And I think that will be a, a skill that will stand to you in the long term as a, as a junior or a trainee. So, so the last topic I want to touch base with you on is, is the concept of predatory journal. So every morning when I wake up, uh, I uh, open my email and, and usually there's between five and seven um, uh, solicitations from various journals. Um, talk to us about predatory journals. And, and I think it's perhaps most relevant, well, relevant across the board, but but obviously, as a junior person, you know, a, a trainee or a, a young attending, um, how do you distill down what is a predatory journal, what is not a predatory journal, and, and how do you distinguish between them? Yeah. So um, it's not just confined to junior people. We've had two instances in the last year in the sphere of sexual medicine where two internationally legendary people thought they were submitting a paper to my journal when in fact they were submitting to a, an uh, open access predatory journal that has a name very similar to mm. my journal, right? So what I say to all the members of the International Society of Sexual Medicine or the Sexual Medicine Society of North America, if my name does not appear on the invitation or on a review, it's not from my journal, okay? And that's the easiest way that you can probably determine where it's coming from. So predatory journals, which is a, a term that I believe Dr. Beale, B-E-A-L-L, -L, and by the way, he has a wonderful list. Um, I don't know the exact URL, but you can look it up online of journals that are in the predatory category, right? Journal publishing is a money-making deal. I think we're all aware of that, okay? Um, these journals offer uh, rapid peer review, generally speaking, probably without any peer review at all. So rapid <laughs> turnaround, cheap open access publications. So for example, many journals will charge you 500 to $2,500 to publish uh, your paper in open access. And these will charge you uh, 50 or $100. And they're working on the volume concept, right? Immediate online publication is another feature. What's most important is that you've lost that paper. That paper is not citable. Uh, you can put it on your CV, but it won't show up on PubMed. There's no filing of metadata that is required to get it recognized from PubMed, etc. There's no effort to preserve the manuscript or that research for the future. So it's doing the field a disservice by taking that research out 
of, uh, of the field. It's an unusable citation, um, and many journals will not accept if you add that into um, the references on your, on your paper, will not accept that uh, reference as a real reference. And really, technically, you should think of this as the article is not officially published. And then, of course, it publishes, uh, pollutes the literature with unverified data, right? So just be very wary. I would honestly ask yourself the question before you submit to any journal, is this the real journal or not? And uh, we've had many people get really burned with top-level research that you can't get back. You're not, they're not gonna, you're not gonna be able to take it back from them and it's mm -hmm. gone. And if you try to publish that again in another journal, technically you're at risk of being accused of um, uh, duplicative uh, publication, which is another academic concern. Well, John, this was really uh, fascinating. I really enjoyed uh, the conversation. I think uh, we hit on a lot of different uh, topic areas and, and obviously your insight as a, as a editorial board member at JU, but also obviously as editor-in-chief at JSM. It's just been invaluable in this discussion. Any, any final thoughts or comments uh, before we wrap up? I think that um, every faculty should have people on it who are recognized as publication mentors. You don't have to be in the exact field that the resident or the fellow wants to go into, but they're published and they understand the, uh, the minefield that is academic publishing, and they should tutor. And in fact, I would love to see residencies have a grand rounds every year on publication ethics, just like we do conflict of interest, right? And how to deal with human beings appropriately and cultural sensitivity and all of those things that we talk about. I think publication ethics should be high on the list. And I think we've let our residents down, our trainees down over the years and not putting this to the forefront. But other than that, you know, I'm available for anyone listening to this podcast on any occasion to answer any question you have, send me an email and I'll be delighted to help you because I'm committed to um, high level publishing and maintaining good publication ethics. Well, John, thank you uh, so much. Uh, I want to thank our audience uh, for their time. Um, I think certainly for more information, uh, please visit auanet.org slash university. And, and certainly, I think, uh, John, as we've talked about, if, if we have a lot of interest on this topic, I think there's a lot of avenues we can go. And, and I do think it's a service to our community. So thank you so much for your time again today. My pleasure.